0: Chapter 11, Part 2 of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. How I Found Livingston Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including four months' residence with Dr. Livingston. By Sir Henry M. Stanley, Chapter Eleven, Part Two, through Yukawendi, Uvinza, and Uha, to Ujiji on the twenty ninth we left our camp, and after a few minutes, we were in view of the sublimest but ruggedest scenes we had yet beheld in Africa. The country was cut up in all directions by deep wild and narrow ravines, trending in all directions, but generally toward the northwest, while on either side rose enormous square masses of naked rock, sandstone, sometimes towering and rounded, sometimes pyramidal, sometimes in truncated cones, sometimes in circular ridges, with sharp, rugged, naked backs, with but little vegetation anywhere visible, Except it obtained a precarious tenure in the fissured crown of some gigantic hilltop, whither some soil had fallen, or at the base of the reddish ochre scarps, which everywhere lifted their fronts to our view. A long series of descents down rocky gullies, wherein we were environed by threatening masses of disintegrated rock, brought us to a dry, stony ravine with mountain heights looming above us a thousand feet high. This ravine we followed, winding around in all directions, but which gradually widened, however, into a broad plain, with a western trend. The road, leaving this, struck across a low ridge to the north, and we were in view of deserted settlements where the villages were built on frowning castellated masses of rock. Near an upright mass of rock over seventy feet high, and about fifty yards in diameter, which dwarfed the gigantic sycamore close to it, we made our camp, after five hours and thirty minutes continuous and rapid marching. The people were very hungry, they had eaten every scrap of meat and every grain they possessed twenty hours before, and there was no immediate prospect of food. I had but a pound and a half of flour left, and this would not have sufficed to begin to feed a force of over forty-five people, but I had something like thirty pounds of tea and twenty pounds of sugar left. And I at once, as soon as we arrived at camp, ordered every kettle to be filled and placed on the fire, and then made tea for all, giving each man a quart of hot, grateful beverage well sweetened party stole out also into the depths of the jungle in search for wild fruit, and soon returned laden with baskets of the wood peach and tamarind fruit, which, though it did not satisfy, relieved them. That night, before going to sleep, the Wanguana set up a loud prayer to Allah to give them food. We rose betimes in the morning, determined to travel until food could be procured or we dropped down from sheer fatigue and weakness. Rhinoceros tracks abounded, and buffaloes seemed to be plentiful, but we never beheld a living thing. We crossed scores of short steeps, and descended as often into the depths of dry stony gullies, and then finally entered a valley, bounded on one side by a triangular mountain with perpendicular sides, and on the other by a bold group, a triplet of hills. While marching down this valley, which soon changed its dry, bleached aspect to a vivid green, we saw a forest in the distance, and shortly found ourselves in cornfields. Looking keenly around for a village, we described it on the summit of a lofty, triangular hill on our right. A loud, exultant shout was raised at the discovery. The men threw down their packs and began to clamor for food. Volunteers were asked to come forward to take cloth and scale the heights to obtain it from the village at any price. While three or four sallied off, we rested on the ground, quite worn out. In about an hour the forging party returned, with the glorious tidings that food was plentiful, that the village we saw was called Weld Nazagoras, the son of Nazagara, by which, of course, we knew that we were in Uvinza. Nizagora being the principal chief in Uvinsa. We were further informed that Nizagora, the father, was at war with Laquinda Mira about some salt pans in the valley of Malagarazi, and that it would be difficult to go to Ujiji by the usual road owing to this war. But, for a consideration, the son of Nazagara was willing to supply us with guides, who would take us safely by a northern road to Ujiji. Everything auguring well for our prospects, we encamped to enjoy the good cheer, for which our troubles and privations during the transit of the Yukawendi forests and jungles had well prepared us. I am now going to extract from my diary of the march, as, without its aid, I deem it impossible to relate fully our various experiences, so as to show them properly as they occurred to us, and as these extracts were written and recorded at the close of each day, they possess more interest, in my opinion, than a cold relation of facts now toned down in memory. October 31st, Tuesday. Our road led east northeast for a considerable time after leaving the base of the triangular mountain, whereon the son of Nozagara had established his stronghold in order to avoid a deep and impassable portion of marsh that stood between us and the direct route to the Malagarazi River. The valley sloped rapidly to this marsh, which received in its broad bosom the drainage of three extensive ranges. Soon we turned our faces northwest and prepared to cross the marsh, and the guides informed us as we halted on the eastern bank Of a terrible catastrophe which occurred a few yards above where we were preparing to cross. They told of an Arab and his caravan, consisting of thirty-five slaves, who had suddenly sunk out of sight, and who were never more heard of. This marsh, as it appeared to us, presented a breadth of some hundred yards on which grew a close network of grass, with much decayed matter mixed up with it. In the center of this and underneath it ran a broad, deep, and rapid stream. As the guides proceeded across, the men stole after them with cautious footsteps. As they arrived near the center, we begin to see the unstable, grassy bridge, so curiously provided by nature for us, move up and down in heavy, languid undulations, like the swell of the sea after a storm. Where the two asses of the expedition moved the grassy waves rose a foot high, but suddenly one unfortunate animal plunged his feet through, and as he was unable to rise he soon made a deep hollow which was rapidly filling with water. With the aid of ten men, however, we were enabled to lift him bodily up and land him on a firmer part, and guiding them both across rapidly, the entire caravan crossed without accident. On arriving at the other side we struck off to the north, and found ourselves in a delightful country, in every way suitable for agriculturalists. Great rocks rose here and there, but in their fissures rose stately trees, under whose umbrage nestled the villages of the people. We found the various village elders greedy for cloth, but the presence of the younger son of Nazagora's men restrained their propensity for extortion. Goats and sheep were remarkably cheap and in good condition, and, consequently, to celebrate our arrival near the Malagarazi, a flock of eight goats was slaughtered and distributed to the men. November 1st, striking northwest after leaving our camp and descending the slope of a mountain, we soon beheld the anxiously looked for Malagarazi, a narrow but deep stream flowing through a valley pent in by lofty mountains. Fish-eating birds lined the trees on its banks, villages were thickly scattered about, food was abundant and cheap. After traveling along the left bank of the river a few miles, we arrived at the settlements recognizing Kiela as their ruler. I had anticipated we should be able at once to cross the river, but difficulties arose. We were told to camp before any negotiations could be entered into. When we demurred, we were informed that we might cross the river if we wished, but we should not be assisted in any way by any mavenza. Being compelled to halt for this day, the tent was pitched in the middle of one of the villages, and the bales were stored in one of the huts, with four soldiers to guard them. After dispatching an embassy to Kiola, eldest son of the great chief Nazagara, to request permission to cross the river as a peaceable caravan, Kiola sent word that the white men should cross his river after the payment of fifty-six cloths. Fifty-six cloths signified a bale, nearly. Here was another opportunity for diplomacy. Bombay and his Mani were empowered to treat Kiala about the Honga, but it was not to exceed twenty-five dhoti. At six a.m., having spoken for seven hours, the two men returned, with the demand for thirteen dote for Nazagra and ten dote for Kiela. Poor Bombay was hoarse, but Asmani still smiled, and I relented, congratulating myself that the preposterous demand, which was simply robbery, was no worse. Three hours later another demand was made. Kiela had been visited by a couple of chiefs from his father— and the chiefs being told that a white man was at the ferry, put in a claim for a couple of guns and a keg of gunpowder. But here my patience was exhausted, and I declared that they should have to take them by force, for I would never consent to be robbed and despoiled after any such fashion. Until 11 p.m., Bombay and Esmane were negotiating about this extra demand, arguing, quarreling, threatening, until Bombay declared, They would talk him mad if it lasted much longer. I told Bombay to take two cloths, one for each chief, and if they did not consider it enough then I should fight. The present was taken, and the negotiations were terminated at midnight. November 2nd, Ijada Island, one and a half hour west of Kielas. We arrived before the island of Ahata on the left bank of the Malagarazi at 5 p.m. The morning having been wasted in puerile talk with the owner of the canoes at the ferry. The final demand for ferriage across was eight yards of cloth and four fundo of same same or red beads, which was at once paid. Four men with their loads were permitted to cross in the small unshapely and cranky canoes. When the boatmen had discharged their canoes of their passengers and cargoes, they were ordered to halt on the other side and, to my astonishment, another demand was made. The ferryman had found that two fundo of these were of short measure, and two fundo more must be paid, otherwise the contract for ferrying us across would be considered null and void. So two fundo more were added, but not without demur and much talk, which in these lands is necessary. Four fundo equals forty necklaces one fundo being ten necklaces three times the canoe went backwards and forwards when lo another demand was made with the usual clamour and fierce wordy dispute this time for five kahete for the man who guided us to the ferry a shuka of cloth for a babbler who had attached himself to the old womanish juma who did nothing but babble and increase the clamour These demands were also settled. About sunset we endeavored to cross the donkeys. Simba, a fine, wild, Kenyamwezi donkey, went in first, with a rope attached to his neck. He had arrived in the middle of the stream when we saw him begin to struggle. A crocodile had seized him by the throat. The poor animal's struggles were terrific. Chauprero was dragging on the rope with all his might, but to no use, for the donkey sank, and we saw no more of him. The depth over the river at this place was about fifteen feet. We had seen the light brown heads, the glittering eyes, and the ridgy backs hovering about the vicinity, but we had never thought that the reptiles would advance so near to such an exciting scene as the vicinity of the ferry presented during the crossing. Saddened by this loss, we resumed our work, and by 7 p.m. we were all across, excepting Bombay and the only donkey now left, which was to be brought across in the morning when the crocodile should have deserted the river. November 3rd. What contention have we not been witness to these last three days? What anxiety have we not suffered ever since our arrival at Uvenza? The Wavins are worse than the Wogogo and their greed is more insatiable. We got the donkey across with the aid of Maganga, or medicine men, who spat some chewed leaves of a tree which grows close to the stream over him. He informed me he could cross the river at any time, day or night, after rubbing his body with these chewed leaves, which he believed to be the most potent medicine. About ten a.m. appeared from the direction of Ujiji a caravan of eighty Wagaha, a tribe which occupies a tract of country on the southwestern side of the Lake Tanganyika. We asked the news, and were told a white man had just arrived at Ujiji-Humanuema. from This news startled us all. A white man? We asked. Yes, a white man, they replied. How is he dressed? Like the master, they answered, referring to me. Is he young or old? He is old. He has white hair on his face and is sick. Where has he come from? From a very far country away beyond Ogoha called Manuema. Indeed. And is he stopping at Ujiji now? Yes, we saw him about eight days ago. Do you think he will stop there until we see him? Segu? Don't know. Was he ever at Ujiji before? Yes, he went away a long time ago. Hurrah! This is Livingston. He must be Livingston. He can be no other. But still, he may be someone else, someone from the west coast, or perhaps he is Baker. No, Baker has no white hair on his face. But we must now march quick, lest he hears we are coming and runs away. I addressed my men and asked them if they were willing to march to Ujiji without a single halt, and then promised them, if they acceded to my wishes, two doughty to each man. All answered in the affirmative, almost as much rejoiced as I was myself, but I was madly rejoiced, intensely eager to resolve the burning question, Is it Dr. Livingston? God grant me patience, but I do wish there was a railroad, or at least horses, in this country. We set out at once from the banks of the Malagarazi, accompanied by two guides furnished us by Usenji, the old man of the ferry, who, now that we had crossed, showed himself more amiably disposed to us. We arrived at the village of Asinga, Sultan Katalambula. After a little over an hour's march across the saline plain, but which, as we advanced into the interior, became fertile and productive. November 4th Started early with great caution, maintaining deep silence. The guides were sent forward, one two hundred yards ahead of the other, that we might be warned in time. The first part of the march was through a thin jungle of dwarf trees, which got thinner and thinner until it vanished altogether, and we had entered aha, uh-huh, a plain country. Villages were visible by the score among the tall, bleached stalks of dura and maize. Sometimes three, sometimes five, ten, or twenty beehive-shaped huts formed a village. The Waha were evidently living in perfect security, for not one village amongst them all was surrounded with the customary defense of an African village. A narrow, dry ditch formed the only boundary between Uha and Uvinza. On entering Aha, all danger from Makumba vanished. We halted at Kawanga, the chief of which lost no time in making us understand that he was the great Mutwar of Kemeni, under the king, and that he was a tribute gatherer for his kia Majesty. He declared that he was the only one in Kemeni, an eastern division of Aha, who could demand tribute and that it would be very satisfactory to him, and a saving of trouble to ourselves, if we settled his claim of twelve dhoti of good cloth at once. We did not think it the best way of proceeding, knowing as we did the character of the native African, so we at once proceeded to diminish this demand. But after six hours' hot argument, the mudhwar only reduced it by two. This claim was then settled upon the understanding that we should be allowed to travel through Aha, as far as the Rasiji River without being further mulcted. November 5th Leaving Kawanga early in the morning and continuing our march over the boundless plains, which were bleached white by the hot equatorial sun, we were marching westward full of pleasant anticipations that we were nearing the end of our troubles joyfully congratulating ourselves that within five days we should see that which I had come so far from civilization, and through so many difficulties to see, and were about passing a cluster of villages, with all the confidence which men possessed, against whom no one had further claim or a word to say, when I noticed two men darting from a group of natives who were watching us, and running towards the head of the expedition with the object, evidently, of preventing further progress. The caravan stopped, and I walked forward to ascertain the cause from the two natives. I was greeted politely by the two waha with the usual yambos, and was then asked, Why does the white man pass the village of the king of Aha uh-huh without a salutation and a gift? Does not the white man know there lives a king in Uha? Uh-huh To whom the wangwana and the arabs pay something for rite of passage why we paid last night to the chief of kawanga who informed us that he was a man deputed by the king of aha to collect the toll how much did you pay ten dhoti of good cloth are you sure quite sure if you ask him he will tell you so "'Well,' said one of the Waha, a fine, handsome, intelligent-looking youth, "'it is our duty to the king to halt you here until we find the truth of this. "'Will you walk to our village and rest yourselves under the shade of our trees "'until we can send messengers to Kowanga? "'No, the sun is but an hour high, and we have far to travel. "'But in order to show you that we do not seek to pass through your country "'without doing that which is right, we will rest where we now stand.' and we will send with your messengers two of our soldiers, who will show you the man to whom we paid the cloth. The messengers departed, but in the meantime the handsome youth, who turned out to be the nephew of the king, whispered some order to a lad, who immediately hastened away with the speed of an antelope to the cluster of villages which we had just passed. The result of this errand, as we saw in a short time, was the approach of a body of warriors, about fifty in number, headed by a tall, fine-looking man who was dressed in a crimson robe called Joho, two ends of which were tied in a knot over the left shoulder. A new piece of American sheeting was folded like a turban around his head, and a large curved piece of polished ivory was suspended to his neck. He and his people were all armed with spears and bows and arrows, and their advance was marked with a deliberation that showed they felt confidence in any issue that might transpire. We were halted on the eastern side of the Pomboya stream, near the village of Lucoma in Kemeni, uh-huh. The gorgeously dressed chief was a remarkable man in appearance. His face was oval in form, high cheekbones, eyes deeply sunk. A prominent and bold forehead, a fine nose, and a well cut mouth. He was a tall figure and perfectly symmetrical. When near to us, he hailed me with the words, Yambo bana, how do you do, master, in quite a cordial tone. I replied cordially also, Yambo mutwa, how do you do, chief. We, myself and men, interchanged Yambos with his warriors, and there was nothing in our first introduction to indicate that the meeting was of a hostile character. The chief seated himself, his haunches resting on his heels, laying down his bows and arrows by his side. His men did likewise. I seated myself on a bale, and each of my men sat down on their loads, forming quite a semicircle. The Waha slightly outnumbered my party. But, while they were only armed with bows and arrows, spears and knob-sticks, we were armed with rifles, muskets, revolvers, pistols, and hatchets. All were seated, and deep silence was maintained by the assembly. The great plains around us were as still in this bright noon as if they were deserted of all living creatures. Then the chief spoke. I am Mayanvu, the great matwar of Kameni, and am next to the king who lives yonder, pointing to a large village some naked hills about ten miles to the north. I have come to talk with the white man. It has always been the custom of the Arabs and the Wangwana to make a present to the king when they pass through his country. Does not the white man mean to pay the king's dues? Why does the white man halt in the road? Why will he not enter the village of Lakoma, where there is food and shade, where we can discuss this thing quietly? Does the white man mean to fight? I know well he is stronger than we are. His men have guns, and the Waha have but bows and arrows and spears, but Aha is large, and our villages are many. Let him look around him everywhere. All is Aha.' and our country extends much farther than he can see or walk in a day. The king of Aha is strong, yet he wishes friendship only with the white man. Will the white man have war or peace? A deep murmur of assent followed the speech of Mayan Bu from his people, and disapprobation blended with a certain uneasiness from my men. When about replying, the words of General Sherman which I heard him utter to the chiefs of the Arapahoes and the Cheyennes at North Platte in 1867, came to my mind, and something of their spirit I embodied in my reply to Monvoo, Matwar of Kemenyi. Monvoo, the great Matwar, asked me if I have come for war. When did Monvoo ever hear of a white man warring against black man? Monvoo must understand that the white men are different from the black, white men do not leave their country to fight the black people neither do they come here to buy ivory or slaves they come to make friends with black people they come to search for rivers and lakes and mountains they come to discover what countries what peoples what rivers what lakes what forests what plains what mountains and hills are in your country to know the different animals that are in the land of the black people that when they go back they may tell the white kings and men and children, what they have seen and heard in the land so far from them. The white people are different from the Arabs and the Wanguana. The white people know everything and are very strong. When they fight, the Arabs and the Wanguana run away. We have great guns which thunder, and when they shoot, the earth trembles. We have guns which carry bullets farther than you can see, even with these little things pointing to my revolvers. I could kill ten men, quicker than you could count. We are stronger than the Waha. Mayan has spoken the truth, yet we do not wish to fight. I could kill Mayan Vu now, yet I talk to him as a friend. I wish to be a friend to Mayan Vu and to the black people. Will Mayan Vu say what I can do for him?" As these words were translated to him, imperfectly, I suppose, but still intelligibly, The face of the Waha showed how well they appreciated them. Once or twice I thought I detected something like fear, but my assertions that I desired peace and friendship with them soon obliterated such feelings. Mayan replied, "'The white man tells me he is friendly. Why does he not come to our village? Why does he stop on the road? The sun is hot. Mayan will not speak here any more.' If the white man is a friend, he will come to the village. "'We must stop now. It is noon. You have broken our march. We will go and camp in your village,' I said, at the same time rising and pointing to the men to take up their loads. We were compelled to camp. There was no help for it. The messengers did not return from Kawanga. Having arrived in his village, Mayan had cast himself at full length under the scanty shade afforded by a few trees within the boma. About 2 p.m. the messengers returned, saying it was true the chief of Kowanga had taken ten cloths, not, however, for the king of Aha, but for himself. Mayanvu, was evidently keen-witted and knew perfectly what he was about, now roused himself and began to make miniature faggots of thin canes, ten in each fagot, and shortly he presented ten of these small bundles, which together contained one hundred to me, saying each stick represented a cloth, and the amount of the honga required by the king of Aha was one hundred cloths, nearly two bales. Recovering from our astonishment, which was almost indescribable, we offered ten. Ten to the king of Aha, impossible. You do not stir from Lokoma until you pass one hundred," exclaimed Maenvu in a significant manner. I returned no answer, but went to my hut, which Mayanvu had cleared for my use. And Bombay, Asmani, Mabruki, and Chavpura were invited to come to me for consultation. Upon my asking them if we could not find our way through Aha, they became terror-stricken, and Bombay, in imploring accents. "'asked me to think well what I was about to do, "'because it was useless to enter on a war with the Waha. "'Oha is all a plain country. "'We cannot hide anywhere. "'Every village will rise all about us. "'And how can forty-five men fight thousands of people? "'They would kill us all in a few minutes. "'And how would you ever reach Ujiji if you died? "'Think of it, my dear master, "'and do not throw your life away for a few rags of cloth.' "'Well, but Bombay, this is robbery. Shall we submit to be robbed? Shall we give this fellow everything he asks? He might as well ask me for all the cloth, and all my guns, without letting him see that we can fight. I can kill Mayanvu and his principal men myself, and you can slay all those howlers out there without much trouble. If Mayanvu and his principal were dead, we should not be troubled much, and we could strike south to the Malagarazi, and go west to Ujiji.' No, no, dear master, don't think of it for a moment. If we were near the Malaga Rosli, we should come across Lokindamira. Mira. Well, then we will go north. Up that way, Aha uh-huh extends far, and beyond Aha uh-huh are the Watutu. Well, then say what we shall do. We must do something, but we must not be robbed. Pay Maonvu what he asks, and let us go away from here. This is the last place we shall have to pay, and in four days we shall be in Ujiji. Did Maenvo tell you that this is the last time we should have to pay? He did indeed. What do you say, Asmani? Shall we fight or pay? Asmani's face wore the usual smile, but he replied, "I am afraid we must pay. This is positively the last time." I knew Chauquera pay bana it is better to get along quietly in this country if we were strong enough they would pay us ah if we only had two hundred guns how these waha would run what do you say mabruki ah master dear master it is very hard and these people are great robbers i would like to chop their heads off all so i would but you had better pay this is the last time and what are one hundred cloths to you well, then, Bombay and money go to Mayanvu and offer him twenty. If he will not take twenty, give him thirty. If he refuses thirty, give him forty. Then go up to eighty. Slowly, make plenty of talk. Not one doty more. I swear to you I will shoot Mayanvu if he demands more than eighty. Go, and remember to be wise. I will cut the matter short. At nine p.m., sixty-four dhoti were handed over to Mayanvu for the king of Ahab, six dhoti for himself, and five dhoti for his sub, altogether seventy-five dhoti, a bale and a quarter. No sooner had we paid than they began to fight amongst themselves over the booty, and I was in hopes that the factions would proceed to battle, that I might have good excuse for leaving them, and plunging south to the jungle that I believe existed there, by which means under its friendly cover we might strike west. But no, it was only a verbose war, which pretended nothing more than a noisy clamor. End of chapter 11, part 2